Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time so probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the podcast. Ian here, been away for a little bit. um, And uh, I've got to say, very nice it was too, actually, not to have the pressure of um, teeing up guests and uh, doing podcasts every week, uh, much as I have enjoyed it, but it's been nice to have a little bit of a break, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I do intend to carry on with the podcast, maybe not to the same um, regularity, maybe every couple of weeks, maybe every three weeks, who knows, but um, yeah, I'm also doing a few other bits and bobs, uh, which I'll bring you up to speed with, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, one particular project uh, involving the TV, which uh, I've never done before, so quite looking forward to that. So uh, as it develops, I don't want to say too much about that at the moment because it's all a little bit flaky, I think that's the word. Right, so this week I'm going to be having a fantastic conversation with Paul Franklin, who is a ex-DI in Wiltshire Police, previous to that, he was in the Met, uh, sort of detective through and through. Paul's a really lovely guy, really fascinating. We had a fantastic conversation uh, about his career, but um, focusing primarily on the investigation into the attempted murder of uh, Vicky Silliers by her uh, ex-husband, Emile Silliers, who is a Army physical training instructor. A uh, very high-profile case, received a lot of press and media attention at the time, uh, back in 2018, uh, albeit the investigation itself uh, was running for uh, a couple of years before it actually came to trial. Um, fascinating and really chilling, disturbing account of the perpetrator who was, by any definition, a thoroughly, thoroughly nasty piece of work. And deserved every year of his 36-year prison sentence that he received at the end of that uh, at the end of that trial. So without further ado, we'll get into the interview. Morning Paul, can you hear me? Yeah morning Ian, yeah I can hear loud and clear, thank you. Oh excellent. How are you? You alright? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, uh, bless you. No, it's really very nice to meet you. Um, I'm in a very echoey room, um, so I'm going to have to do some trickery with my software afterwards because um, anyone who listens to the podcast will know that I've had the most um, soul-destroying and painful building project <laughs> going on for about 12 months. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah, I remember you saying. Which is now finished, thank God. Sounds um, never-ending. But uh, oh, the, right. room, the room I'm in is now finished, but albeit it looks like a doctor's surgery because there's nothing in it at the moment. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably more than a doctor's surgery, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, you so really, to a surgery. So yeah, 
Yeah, no, really nice to meet you and really nice that you put yourself forward for the podcast. And uh, as you know, I've had a little bit of a break from it, but uh, yeah, going to get back to it again, maybe not the same tempo in terms of once a week, but, but yeah, I'll just uh, keep plugging away because people seem to enjoy it. So, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I've been listening, I'm caught more, but I've listened to most of them since the beginning. So obviously you had Nick Bailey on at the very start and he's That's a right. friend of mine from the, from Salisbury. So yeah, that kind of got me onto it. Yeah. And I'm, I've stayed with it since. Yeah, a load of people listen to it, mate. It's uh, oh, bless him. Yeah, bless him. Well yeah, Nick, Nick uh, is a great guy, and um, yeah, I hope he's doing all right because um, obviously having left the job now, it's a sad loss to policing. But yeah, so um, um, I'm not sure what he's up yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, I don't think he's doing a, a great deal. To be fair, I think he's filling his time, but he's with his family and uh, he's healthy, yeah. which is yeah, yeah, for him, I think is number one priority now. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I'll have to I'll have to drop my line and say hi and see how he's doing. But uh, anyway, um, more about you. Uh, so I was really chuffed that you contacted me because um, I think you've got some really, really interesting stuff uh, that you've been doing. And um, yeah, really looking forward to hearing all about it. So so just um, briefly give everyone a bit of a sort of a potted history of who you are. And, uh, you know, to give us a flavour of what we're going to talk about, I suppose. Yeah, sure. So uh, so I started the police in 1991. I grew up in Andover, Hampshire, but I joined the Met because they were recruiting at the time. And obviously you still had the single men's accommodation there. So my family were originally from London and moved down in the overspill in the mid 60s and Andover being one of those towns. So I grew up there. Looking back, surrounded again by a load of Londoners, to be fair, because we all lived on a council estate and they were all the same as my parents, having all moved out from various parts of London. So, yeah, in hindsight, it was almost like a little mini London you were growing up in. So, yeah, so I grew up there. I was 23, so a bit of a late, uh, bit of a late joiner. Same age as me when I joined, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'd, I'd finished school, I'd done college, didn't do uni, wasn't really the sort of thing that happened at my school or my sort of peer group. We weren't. We just didn't do that really. It wasn't in our sort of uh, in our boundaries. So uh, I yeah. bounced around really. I'd worked for the MOD, I'd worked for TSB, I'd done labouring jobs on building sites. I'd kind of done a mishmash of, of things. Uh, yeah. and what I'd come to the conclusion was I certainly didn't want to sit in an office eight to five every day. Yeah. Uh, I needed to be out and about. Uh, and, that, and that's where the police thing came into really. It's uh, It was a bit of a whim. I saw it advertised. Mm. Initially looked at Hampshire, but they weren't recruiting. Uh, so the Met were, so I applied, and uh, so in what was it uh, April '91, I uh, turned up at Hendon with me shiny shoes or semi shiny shoes, as they turned out to be. They weren't shiny at all compared to the military uh, yeah. lads that were with us, and uh, yeah, started my journey from there. Yeah. So did the 20 weeks. Didn't know London particularly well. Uh, there was a girl in my class, Lucy, whose father had been a superintendent, and I was like, look, I just want to go somewhere busy, Lucy. What can you recommend? She goes, oh, my dad uh, was a superintendent in Hackney. You want to go there if you want busy? <laughs> yeah. No idea. You'll definitely, get, yeah. you'll definitely get busy there, <laughs> won't you? <laughs> so I put down Hackney and uh, turned up at Stoke Newington, which was uh, yeah, oh, a culture yeah. shock in every respect. It oh, was just right. so you busy, might, busy, you'll, busy. You'll but, probably know my mate John Fox then as well. Do you, know, do you remember John? Name he was at rings Stoke, a bell. I don't know if I know. Stoke Newington now. No, we've had quite a few. We've had a few sort of Hackney, Stoke Newington people on, aren't we? So, uh, yeah. It was yeah. just... It was a material. I didn't quite realise how busy it was till uh, so I moved out of uh, a section house, uh, and four of us uh, had 
rented a house together and we all worked in different parts of London. But in those days, mm. as long as you went into the same shift, you obviously all worked the same pattern. Yeah. So my mate was down in Limehouse and my other mate, she was in the city, in the city centre there. She was in Belgravia. And then we'll talk about what we're doing and what she's doing. She's like, Limey, you've got stabbings and murders and yeah, <laughs> all yeah. sorts coming out your ears. Know, and Limehouse again was just another really busy place. So yeah. Suddenly dawned on me. Yeah, so were you all uh, were you all working the same shift pattern? Because otherwise, it would have been pretty chaotic with people coming. Yeah, yeah. So, so we all, yeah. So, so we done sort of I don't know six eight months in the section house and we ranged it. So we realised coincidence really. We'd all picked a shift, uh, and so we all had the same rest days. You know, we all started. So we, we had mm. no issues with us coming in late from nights and whatever. And it all worked yeah. out really well, to be honest. Uh, so I did that. Uh, probably spent. So in 95, I did my probation. Uh, and bizarrely, when I was in Hendon, I, I, I have no idea who it was, but one of our instructors there had a DI come in. And all I remember was he was from the flying squad. He had a sheepskin coat. He had gold sovereigns on his hand. He spoke about nicking people. And I just thought, that's he, what I want to do. Talked that, his, that's what I want to do. talked side of his mouth. Oh, <laughs> oh he, he did it. Everything stereotypical you could think of a sort of flying squad DI governor, he was. But for me, I was just like, yeah, that, that, that's where I want to be. That's, <laughs> and that just sparked my interest then in being a detective. Uh, yeah. And I started new to met some really great people there, got some really great help, uh, finished my probation, was lucky enough to get the various attachments to CID and burglary squads, robbery squads. And I thought, yeah, this, this is the path I want to follow, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Then there was a real... I can't remember why, but back in the sort of early 90s, around there, there was a real sort of delay in becoming a detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, there been a lot of people that have been there TIs for years. So uh, I was with my ex-wife at the time, we weren't married, and we decided to do a bit of travelling. So I put in a request. To 728. Take a break. Got... Yeah, that's it, 728. Uh, <laughs> again, just not really expecting to get it, but it went through. So I took 30 months off. Uh, flew to Los Angeles, bought Winnebago and lived in it for a year. Oh, did a whole tour in the United States, did the whole all up the West Coast, along the North, right down the East Coast to Florida and back along to LA again. Oh, Literally in 12 months time, landed back in LA with a retired uh, sheriff, sold the Winnebago and flew home and started again. Uh, so I came back, lived with the in-laws, yeah. said, can I go back to Stoke Newington? They went, no, absolutely no. I went, oh, okay. And got posted to Hampstead. Oh, uh, again, that was sort of very, very different. As uh, different as you could get, there. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was amazing. I mean, it's just like a little village, wasn't it, really? Hampstead in the middle of London. It was, But then you were surrounded by Kilburn and all the others. It's just that typical London side-by-side, you know, really affluent to really mm. poor, mm. almost cheap by jowl. So I did get my D when I was there and got posted to Edmonton. Uh, so I went up you. there as a DC. So you stayed north of the river then? Yeah, always stayed north of the river, to be fair. We always, uh, uh, so we always, we always jumped, don't we? But, you know, I was always south of the river and you'd get a nosebleed, wouldn't you? If you go, go <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Never went south of the river, to be fair. It makes me chuckle. It is strange, but no, no tubes, is it? No, it just makes me laugh. It's it's like, you know, everyone's so yeah. kind of, anyone who's north of the river was just so disparaging about people who were not south of the river and vice versa it's just so ridiculous isn't it it is ridiculous yeah it absolutely is but it is, it is madness it you just you know it just makes you think back and i was watching the coronation the other day and 
and I'd say to my, my son, I'm saying, I remember after the pipe bombs on Downing Street, mm-hmm. uh, we were all called in to the City of London to uh, patrol. And my patrol area was a quarter of that roundabout, the, uh, the oh, birthday God. cake roundabout. We literally oh, had four God. police officers and yeah, you two hours, two on each. Oh, you forget yeah. all those sort of things, don't they? Oh, and they come dreadful. back to you. Think, oh, well, I never, you know, I've said this before, but I never really understood what the expression bored to tears actually meant <laughs> <laughs> until you've done a few night duties, Centre of London security, 12 hour night duties, wandering yeah. up and down 100, 100 yards of horse guards parade, you know, with, with no fucker around <laughs> to talk to. Yeah, hey, yeah, deserve, yeah, literally, just. Yeah, so I did that. Uh, I got promoted to DS and uh, got kept on get, uh, to Edmonton, didn't get posted. Uh, I'd been there about a year or so. And the chief super, I can't remember her name, said they had vacancies and would I like to stay. And I really enjoyed the, enjoyed the police station, enjoyed the people there. So I asked to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, then went from CID onto a crime squad there with uh, Dave McKelvey was my DI at the time. All oh, right, okay, yeah, he's very, very uh, high profile now on LinkedIn, isn't he? Does a lot of stuff absolutely. With all my local Bobby yeah. and and the yes. other sort of cold case stuff as well, isn't it? Yeah, so he did all that, and then I mean, and I was really, uh, yeah, I was really happy there. I was working stupid, stupid hours as we all were, and loving every minute of it. I mean. Looking back, I was doing 80, 90 hours of overtime a month oh, and couldn't get enough. It was, but in that meantime, I'd married, we had a little girl, uh, and obviously that was causing some issues at home. And mm-hmm. then my wife got pregnant again uh, with twins, but unfortunately we lost them. Uh, we oh, lost them yeah. really late. Uh, so she had to go through the whole oh, maternity, she had to go yeah. to maternity wards oh, and give God. birth, et cetera. Horrible. And that just kind of gave us a bit of a, a time to think really about what did I want in that life what did I really want and mm-hmm. it was my whole aim had been to be a DC to try and get on the flying squad and it's kind of like actually I need to give a bit more time to my family you're a dad now you've got other responsibilities yeah. that led to me sort of reconsidering everything I'd done really uh and the outcome of that was I transferred to Wiltshire Police all right uh, didn't go back to Hampshire that's a big old, uh, so big old change why particularly uh Wiltshire well, I applied for Hampshire and Wiltshire because they were recruiting and right. Wiltshire offered me money. They offered me some money regarding oh, okay. moves and yeah. resettlement package. Never underestimate uh, the attraction of cash. No, no, absolutely. No mercenary to the last. And mm-hmm. they came back first. So, yeah, I didn't mind which force I went to. I mean, Hampshire obviously been a, a bigger force, uh, but no, I, I was happy with that. And uh, right. I knew I'd get a better work-life balance out of that, which at the time was a real sort of, yeah, the driving force behind it. Spend yeah, time those are always difficult decisions, aren't they, to make? And I made that decision myself. You know, I was, albeit I moved to the West Midlands, which was another big urban force. But um, yeah. yeah, but the key driver for me, I suppose, like you, was to try and have a bit more family and life balance. And the commuting and the traffic was starting to get on top of me. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough decision, though, isn't it? I mean, it's a real. You get sucked into yeah. that kind of crazy. Uh, you lifestyle do, yeah. of you know doing long hours and you know I was on the surveillance team for the last few years before I left and I was doing very long hours traveling a lot of time away from home and everything but you're absolutely right it's it's no good for family life is it no no it's not and that's the trouble is you make promises of being up you know nativities and the Christmas plays 
actually you're always doing work so interesting yeah <laughs> i know and you're loving it and it's just you, you mm-hmm. have that personal dilemma all the time and it's just i mean mm-hmm. i was like i said when i was on the, the crime squad there there was four teams and i was the youngest i was a brand new ds there was mm-hmm. a ds there that had come off the flying squad someone had come off the murder team and the third one the conspiracy fraud squad i think so mm-hmm. really experienced people yeah. and i was just trying to learn as much as i could and suck up information so the more I could be around and ask and talk, you know, for mm. me, it was never a burden for me. I was happy yeah. work all the hours, but that has yeah. an impact. It has an impact. It's not yeah, just I remember um, single, but... when I was on surveillance, I remember my DS at the time um, saying to me in the pub, like uh, rather guiltily saying, there's only one thing. My wife and I, you know, we love each other very much and we don't have any secrets from each other. But he, he said to me, there's one thing I would never tell my wife. And I said, oh, what's that? Thinking, oh, God, what's he going to tell me, you know? And, <laughs> and uh, he goes, I'd never tell her how much fun we have when we go OMPD. <laughs> <laughs> and for those listening, OMPD is outside the Met Farm Police District, which is like basically uh, our surveillance team has gone like every day, you know? And, yeah. um, and, and very yeah. often you're away for days at a time. And it is like being... <laughs> It is like being on a sport. It's like being on a sports tour or something. You know what I mean? We a bunch yeah, of young imagine. people, all all absolutely up for it. Absolutely hilarious, fun, and making loads of money. Yeah. I mean, what's not to like? You know? Absolutely, absolutely. That's funny. So you went to Wiltshire. What was that like? It must have been a bit of a culture shock, was it? Yeah, it was a massive culture shock. To be fair, it was just. So I went back in uniform. They posted me. I got. The sergeant's post in uniform and uh salisbury is a city but it's you know it's a large town at moat best and i think i remember the first week i was doing nights and there was a couple of lads playing up so one gets nicked for drunk they, you know the van comes up he gets scooped away to custody someone else thinks they it's funny they'll join in so i nick him i said yeah i'll have another van please it's like you what that's it no no, no you, you've got the one van no more you're, vans <laughs> you'll have to stand there and wait till he comes back i was like what are you God. talking about I was just like, yeah this, this is Wiltshire. you got one van that's it oh, <laughs> like, all right on. so, so you, you just feel, learn you feel a feel a drs coming on mm. <laughs> yeah and you learn to, to talk more and use your mouth it's a different style of police and you don't have the backup you don't have the, the numbers that you had in the met but you know we didn't have really the level of violence either so and apologies to Welch officers who might be listening but do you have to wear one of those ridiculous looking helmets with the big sort of no no it was a fairly normal looking helmet yeah it was a fairly normal looking helmet yeah they've got yes with a big (laughs) funny bit on the front yeah yeah we did have those luckily just need a few ostrich (laughs) feathers up there just to set up this absolutely no we were lucky we didn't have that so Yes, yeah, so I did a year in there. Then I got posted to Custody Suite. Did a year in there. That was in the days when you could charge who you liked with what you liked and remand them right, <laughs> at yeah. will, uh, just to annoy the solicitors. Uh, and then and went sorry, back you probably did. You probably did say, but sorry, where where were you actually based? So Salisbury. Salisbury. So I lived right, in okay, Salisbury. Same as, same as Nick. Yeah. yeah, so I just lived outside Salisbury in a little village, and I worked in Salisbury. Right. So I did response for a year, did custody for a year, then went back into the CID again at Salisbury. Right. Um, so you so knew Nick Billy then, it, obviously. Was, was yeah, that so that's thing? where I met Nick. Oh, yeah, okay. so he was a young PC. And, right. and which is you know, it's a strange, it's a strange 
geography to Wiltshire because you've got Salisbury in the south and obviously the biggest urban hub is Swindon at the north yeah and then below that you've got Trowbridge and Melksham but yeah. in the middle you've got Salisbury Plain yeah which almost makes Salisbury different to the rest of Wiltshire it's more right. in common with Dorset and Hampshire really so right. yeah a bit like north and south London there was a bit of rub between you know, right. the city police of Salisbury and the rest of Wiltshire right. you, know, you think right. you're different you think you're so Never yeah it's the twin shall make but it's, no, uh, it, I'm going to show my I'm going to show my massive ignorance now. Is is Swindon in Wiltshire? Yes, yeah, it is right at the north at the top there, and that's our largest town. That has any that's the usual urban issues, but that's right. by far. And people working Swindon will say, you know, they're the busiest, they're the best, because again, very similar to the mentality. It's the biggest, and it, you know, it, it turns over the most prisoners, it causes the most crimes, mm. but it sits on that sort of M4 corridor, yeah. direct links to London, so. It became one of the biggest hubs for county line running. Just I'm going to use a right, use a right neck expression. Now. You get all the slag coming out of London, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. See, that causes. I, I haven't used that expression. I, that word. I, haven't, I haven't used that word for so many years, but it just kind of. I just pictured all these kind of scumbags driving out <laughs> from London to commit high value burglaries and all of that stuff. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah, we, you get all we, a we had a, I remember, I think I was back as a DI, we had a meeting once. Our, the director of intelligence was a uh, a civilian, female civilian, really good lady. But we had a meeting once and she said, you know, here's your post-it now. And you put up on the board what you enjoy most about the job. And what I wrote on there, nicking slags, <laughs> and putting that on the board, she had a heart attack. I had to explain, no, what I actually meant was bad people and criminals, not women with loose morals. And she was like, oh, yeah, right, I, I guess. <laughs> it's, like, it's a real net expression. I'd love to know if that expression is. I don't suppose anybody's allowed to use that expression anymore, publicly no. or, or privately. <laughs> but it is yeah. a met thing. You're right. It's yeah. just, and you find other people who transfer from the met, get it straight away, and listen to yeah. it. You fucking yeah. slag. You know, exactly. Yeah. For those listening, it's nothing to do with women with loose morals, as you say. It's just a an expression used. It's another one was scrotes, wasn't it? The Met, yeah. The word yeah. scrotes. So a scrote tended to be a young, young criminal, didn't it? Whereas yeah, uh, slag right, yeah. was generally a more experienced criminal, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was just common parlance, wasn't it? It was just yeah, that's it. The, the power of words and yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah I introduced them to it in, in Salisbury, but yeah, <laughs> good, good man. So uh, <laughs> good skills. So um, so yeah. So that one of the things that. I really wanted to chat to you about uh, Paul. Was um, the when you contacted me, uh, you were involved in the uh, investigation into really high-profile investigation. I was, I, I must admit, I followed it quite closely. I think a lot of people did because it was fascinating. Yeah. It was gruesome and gripping and full of twists and turns. And this was the investigation into the ex-army guy. His name I can't remember, but you'll remind me, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, Emil Sillias. Emil Sillias, that's it, who tried to kill his wife by cutting her parachute ropes. So, um, before we dive into that story, because I'm fascinated, I want to hear all about <laughs> it. Um, obviously, you were a DI at that time. So, there's a little bit, so you've obviously gone on to get further promoted then, haven't you? Um, yeah, I did. I took my exams, uh, did a little bit in uniform, then went back. So I, at that time, I was a DI of a general CIDs. And again, it was based in Salisbury. Uh, mm. At that stage, we we sold our police station and we were working out of a council office as we do now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, that was 
it. So I was running a general team, you know, detectives and some uh, local crime investigators, so civilian PIP1 and PIP2 trained investigators. Okay. When this came in just very innocuously and took three years of my life. Yeah, so t- talk us through um, how that job reared its head right at the first knockings you know the, the very first sort yeah. of uh information that you were given so to speak yeah so literally so it was a bank holiday monday it was in may 2015 so my friend mark lewis who was a ds and one of the teams was in the office and he literally gets a phone call uh chat rings up says hi i'm the chief instructor at netherhaven so netherhaven was a uh, it's a military base and they yeah. use it for skydiving and jumping so there's a huge hangar there half of it is tri-service military where they do all their adventure training where they send people to you know confront their fears and do difficult stuff mm-hmm. but it's also there is a civilian jump school which although it's mili- military orientated and most members are ex or linked to military anybody mm-hmm. can go there and you can learn to jump and you can jump there so mm-hmm. he says look so we had an accident here today there's a lady who's gone up uh she's come out her main parachute and her reserve parachute haven't worked she's we know her. She's an instructor herself. She's an extremely experienced skydiver. Uh, she's been airlifted to hospital. Uh, we've recovered all the parts and pieces of the parachute, and we're just not happy. We're not happy. Uh, we can't account for why it's failed, uh, and we're so unhappy. We thought we should ring the police. Mm-hmm. What it well, turns out, yeah, well happened. done, well done to to that person for for doing yeah. that. Really, yeah. And his ethos around it is quite similar to. The, you know, the whole of the aviation authority that when things go wrong mm. they don't care who's responsible they don't look someone to blame they want to know why and what he says is mm. you know tomorrow i'll jump my son will jump my wife will jump so we need to know what's gone wrong to make sure it doesn't happen again so mm-hmm. we're really open because for us it's all about the jumping so we can't mm-hmm. have this happening again so yeah. that's how it started so mm-hmm. mark so um, not not exactly your normal call into cid is it no no not so, but you, but you do get those things where you just the strange and unusual happens, and you kind of mm-hmm. think, well, we'll scope it out, we'll see what happens. Yeah, whether it's an industrial accident, a farming accident, mm-hmm. this sort of adventure, and a lot of the times you'll find a, a perfectly reasonable and proper explanation of why mm-hmm. it's happened, some sort of me- mechanical failure or something like that, and, uh, and then you can get on with your lives. Uh, so we went out, we collected the parachute. Uh, obviously, we knew nothing at all at that point zero about parachutes and how they work so we had to learn that and we sent the parachute off to the british parachute association i think they're now called british skydiving right uh, and we said look can you have a look at it and just tell us what went wrong yeah uh, and that was it that was so at those early stages it's i'm thinking yeah, this isn't really a criminal just investigation treat it, probably it, as won't a, go anywhere. treat it as an accident yeah, yeah. treat it as an accident and see where we go and what they'd said was so you have your parachute canopy, then you have the lines that come down from there. Then on your back, you have a backpack, which just looks like a rucksack. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, and sewn into those are pieces of material that are similar to, I'll describe it like seatbelt material. Mm-hmm. And so the lines attached to those, that, uh, those bits of cord there yeah. and how they're held on. And it used to be metal carabiners, but obviously they, have, they can suffer metal fatigue. So yeah. they now use a thing called slinks which are just mm-hmm. composite material. They're about, I don't know, four or five inches in length, and they wrap mm-hmm. around twice. Developed in America, super, super strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, stronger than any metal. 
Uh, basically, you have four, two at front, two at back. And what they found off a reserve parachute, two were missing. Right. Uh, which he said they couldn't account for, didn't know why. So that's what we had. Uh, right. So real so just, low um, level. Just thinking about her then for a moment. Um, what condition was she in um, at that time? So again, this is, you know, every aspect of this case has unusual circumstances. So they generally jump at 15,000 feet. Uh, this was her first jump. She'd been away for eight months because she'd been pregnant. She'd given birth some five weeks beforehand. So this was her first jump back. Right. So it should go to 15,000 feet. Uh, they didn't that day because they don't jump through cloud. They will always mm -hmm. jump under the cloud level. So what they said was on this day, the highest they could go was 4,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So she jumped out at 4,000, deployed her main parachute, which was a complete tangled mess. So mm -hmm. she cut that away, which just means she pulls a strap and it disengages. Uh, the reserve had deployed, and that deploys literally within the blink of an eye. Uh, and that's bare, it's attached on the left on the left hand side, but nothing else. So the parachute mm -hmm. itself is like seven tubes that mm -hmm. inflate, in the shape of an aircraft wing, and they none of them can inflate. They partially inflate on the left, and that's it which puts her into a, a spin and she falls the 4,000 feet. Now, oh she God. misses the airfield. Next to the airfield was a tarmac road. She misses that road and the field, the other side of it, purely by chance that day or you know, a day or two beforehand had been freshly plowed. Right. So, so she lands on that, but she doesn't land directly. She lands while spinning. Right. So she hits it at some speed. I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, probably 20 to 30 miles an hour, nice. maybe a bit faster, but she hits it in a downward spiraling motion. Which saved her uh, life, I think, probably. Yeah, that saved life. And she herself was a real, real slight build, you know, seven, eight stone. Mm. Uh, so when you jump from the aircraft, they have a open top bus on the, uh, on the apron at the front of the hangar there. And they count the people out. They stand there with binoculars and make sure they count. So they know immediately if anything's gone wrong. Mm. So they put out a tunnel immediately when they see her parachute not working. And they race up. And the first person to get there was a, a Marines captain, actually. And he said, I expected it to be a fatality. He said, mm. I had a body bag in my car. He said, yeah. I never expected me to get there. And she's alive. Right. Uh, and so they call the, they dial 999 and get in their ambulance. They explain who they are. And they send the ambulance. So she was badly, badly injured. But on the same time, from my sort of novice perspective, I thought she'd have every, every bone in her body broken, but mm. she didn't. You know, she, her legs and head, her head mainly, the main thing was fine, didn't get injured. Her legs and arms were fine. She'd broken her pelvis. She'd done various internal organ damage mm. and she had damage to her spine, but she had no fractures or breaks in her spine. Right. So miraculous. I mean, what I can say is miraculous, you know, Yes, extensive and horrible damage, mm. but certainly not life-changing damage that I was expecting her to have. So, uh, okay. yeah, she was airlifted to Southampton Hospital. And was she able to give an account um, early doors in terms of her understanding of what might have happened or? Uh... No, not really. We spoke to her. I say she was in ITU for a bit. Uh, and when she came out of that, after a couple of days, we went and spoke to her and she said, look, she said, I don't know what happened. Uh, it's unusual. It wasn't expected. I can't account for it. And again, this this was a lady who jumped two, three thousand times, hugely wow. experienced. And she goes, it shouldn't have happened, but I can't tell you why. So uh, she obviously didn't it. have any suspicions of anything uh, on tour. No, she had no suspicions at all. 
Okay. Or nothing she would tell us at that point. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're kind of thinking, okay, we're we're just uh, we'll wait and see what the parachute association come back with. And then in the meantime, uh, a lady contacts us, uh, contacts us out of the blue, uh, and she says, "Hi." She goes, "I'm a personal friend, best friend of Vicky, the the victim here." She goes. And I just want to give you some information. She goes, so I'm not happy about the whole incident. I'm like, okay, what's that? She goes, well, she goes, what you'll see from the outside is, you know, a young couple, two young children, good-looking couple, lovely children, brand new house, couple of Audis on the drive. Looks from the outside a picture perfect marriage. Mm-hmm. She goes, but isn't on the inside. It's much more toxic. Uh, we, you know, we're good friends. We go around for you know for dinners and barbecues and events. Uh, he doesn't treat her very well. We've caught him on Tinder and other dating apps, and he just laughs it off and says it's a joke. Uh, you know, potential that he's over the side. He's seeing other women, right. uh, and she just puts up with it. So she said, "What you'll see from the outside isn't necessarily what the relationship is behind closed doors." So okay, so nothing evidential, but she said, knowing yeah. that when I went to the because I went up to Netherhaven and when they said yes he was here on the day that she initially went because she went to jump Saturday couldn't jump because of the cloud cover so jump Sunday mm-hmm. she goes, so when I found out he was there on Saturday she goes I'm just unhappy with it yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, okay so then we pushed the BPA and said look you know really need an answer now what do you think and they went well we've examined it totally and they said there's nothing wrong with it she goes, he said we can give you no mechanical reason why it failed but we can't mm-hmm. rule out manual interference so all of oh. a sudden we've gone from just scoping a, a potential accident actually it now appears that this has actually been interfered with and done deliberately and she's the accident's been caused rather than just happened through some sort of a negligence or manual failure by parachute equipment so we literally lurch from one sort of scoping an accident to actually now we're into an investigation with a woman really seriously injured let me just pause so, you there for two seconds. Just, I just yeah, need sure. to check my battery um, is plugged in. Uh, one second. Yeah, no, I think we're okay. Sorry about that. Um, just, yeah, um, yeah, no worries. Checking the plugs, no plug switched on. Um, Right, so you've so you've so you're obviously gone from a situation of thinking I've got no idea what this is all about, um, to the new information from the friend of the victim, and the assessment yeah. by the parachute association. So, I'm guessing you're immediately thinking this is potential attempt murder. Yeah, that that's what I'm thinking, and yeah. True. And in addition to that, what we uh, also found in those intervening couple of weeks was when they recovered all the parachute parts from the uh, the airfield, they take them back. So when you do parachuting, this is what we learned. After you do it for a number of months, you can learn to repack your own parachute. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't take very long. It's not that skilled. And then what you can do is once you get good at it, you pack other people's and they pay you whatever, 10, 15 pound a pack. So on a Saturday, you make quite a bit of money because they'll have two planes running, mm-hmm. dozens of people jumping. But a reserve parachute can only be packed by a trained rigger. Uh, and they have one per jump site and they had one. That, uh, and for those, that's an hour and a half, two hour job. 
and then right. repacked every six months. So almost like an MOT, taken out, yeah, yeah. broken down to component parts, each part checked, repacked, a form signed, and then recorded and kept for posterity. Uh, so they recovered all of her stuff. Oh, I just lost your... Um... I just, I just, I just lost you. Yeah, you're, back, you're back again. Yeah, I'm back now, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's okay. Not sorry. Right, where we lost you was, and um, you were just saying, um, the professional rigor um, had to do it. Yeah. It's like an MOT. Uh, yeah, so just take it from That's there. Right. So, and they do it in a secure, sterile container, so it's not uh, contaminated by anything else. So, with Vicky's parachute parts and what they'd recovered, they'd take them back there and examined. But while I said examined them, they'd use GoPros. So from the very start, we had all that on video, on audio. As it turned out, the chairman of the Army, Army Parachute Association was also a trained civil aircraft crash investigator. So everything they'd done, they'd done really thoroughly. And it was given us, and we had access to all that information immediately. So mm -hmm. they're showing you, this is why it's unusual. This is why it's really tangled. It shouldn't be like this. So we had all that information. We're like, well, the obvious, you know, it's either an attack on Vicky or it's an attack on the club. Uh, all the other parachute and Vicky that day had used a parachute from the club rather than her own personal one because her own personal one had been in for a service. Right. So they checked all their parachutes and there was there was no other issues or damage or, of course, any other the club parachute. So now we're mm -hmm. looking at Vicky herself, you know, and the obvious step is you know, her other half, her husband at that time. So we thought, well. We've got to get an account anyway. Yeah. How do we do it? You know, what's the best way? Uh, Mark, he's, he's my DS, uh, really good guy, really meticulous, thorough. He's the more sort of slow time thinking type. I'm a bit more, look, do it, do it now. Let's just get on with it and don't mm -hmm. apply that much detail to it. Yeah. So between us, we work quite well. So he was like, you know, perhaps we should. I said, no, we're not going to work. We're going to arrest him. We're arresting him at his work. Give him, put him under a bit of pressure, take him to local custody suite, and it'll also give us powers of search afterwards. Mm -hmm. I said, and I want to search his work, his lockers, his home. So they did that. Uh, on a, um, quite a, if, I can, if I can just, um, just sort of pause you for a second, it's quite a bold, um, yeah, I, think yeah, it, I think it was the correct, I think it was the right decision, but quite a bold, quite a tricky decision to make, isn't it? Okay, so so you're thinking um, this is file play, and you've made a decision, quite a bold decision, to take the bull by the horns and make an arrest. Um, so, um, so yeah. So what was his what was his kind of reaction when he gets arrested? This is where it really starts to get quite interesting. So I sent down a, a female officer as well as a male officer, just on a bit of a sixth sense. Uh, no real reason behind it. So they arrest him at his work, uh, which is an order shot with the help of the military police there, uh, and he makes no comment whatsoever. So, so he's, he's a serving. He's a serving. Um, he's a sergeant in the physical training corps, Royal right. Army Physical Training Corps. Right. So he's there at work, uh, gets arrested for attempted murder of his wife, yeah, and makes no comment whatsoever. Right. So he gets taken to Guildford Police Station, which is a, the nearest custody suite rather than bring him all the way back yeah uh, so i'm back in sort of being i'm expecting in all honesty i'm expecting they'll get booked in they'll get a solicitor you might say a pre-prepared statement you might go no comment a couple of hours 
they'll be yeah. down and back. So time ticks on, ticks on, uh, hear nothing, hear nothing. Uh, their phones are constantly off. Uh, the outcome of it is he doesn't have a solicitor. He's offered it, declines it, wants to be interviewed on his own and speaks for six hours oh and doesn't God. stop Beautiful. talking. Oh, yeah, we'll take that every doesn't day of the week, won't we? Talking. Yeah. So we had, yeah, we had nothing really to put to him. You know, we, we had no real knowledge of parachute. So everything we asked was really open questions, you know, tell me about. Mm. And he did. And he just, but he just went so far beyond. They they came away saying that this has just raised so many red flags to us. So yeah, yeah, he starts yeah. off by trying to flirt with Maddie. Yeah. Who was the DC, female DC. She shuts him down immediately. Uh, won't have that. Uh, so he ignores her for the rest of the interview and concentrates on the male PC and tries to make him his friend. Right. He starts saying things like, you know, I'm a good father, but I'm not a bad husband. Don't love my wife. I want to leave my wife. Uh, I've got another girlfriend on the go. I'm really serious about her. I want to, you know, be with her. That's what I'm going to be with. I'm going to leave her as soon as the baby's, you know, we sort out the baby stuff. Okay. Uh, but then he goes on, but, you know, I use Tinder. I, I like to go, I use swinging sites. I like to, you know, have sex with various women, lots of women. And I think he also disclosed then he was using sex workers off various sex and sites. This is as in well. his very first so interview. This, this is in his very first interview where he's probably, whether he's thinking, if I say all this, I'll be seen as a bit of a lad and you know, one of the boys and a mate. Whereas they're all thinking, Jesus, God, this, <laughs> we're not the moral police. And yeah, people go over the side, but this was so far beyond yeah. anything like that. It was just really. So, also, we did in the meantime is we had a quick look at his phone that we'd seized. Yeah. And on there, we come across a text message to the girlfriend who was an Austrian national saying, uh, the baby isn't mine that my ex-wife's had. Uh, she had an affair. Uh, and here's the DNA proof. Here's the DNA results to prove that uh, the baby isn't mine. Uh, so not only was he lying about that, you know, he was the father. You know, his wife had just given birth five weeks ago. He's denying paternity of his own son. You're thinking, geez, what a, that's, what a, what a, that's a whole different mental outlook. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we had all of that. We came back. They came back. He gets bailed to uh, go back to. He's got a room on Sergeant's Mess on camp. So he goes back. To, well, we think we thought he went back to camp there. Yeah. The only bail, the only bail conditions. These were good old days of bail conditions. Were not to go home, not to see his wife or two children. Yeah. What we didn't realise was his ex-wife lived about two miles away as a crow flies in the middle of Amesbury. And he went back there and lived with her. <laughs> so oh, we didn't realise he was still continuing. You know, he was married, had two kids and divorced. He still continued a sexual relationship with her as well. Oh, he's a real whilst piece married of, to Vicky. He's a real piece of work, isn't he? Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, warrants uh, you know, a research in his own right. It's incredible. I mean... The long and short of it is we got it looked at by a forensic psychologist from the NCA who said, look, he has all the traits and characteristics of someone who is a sociopath stroke psychopath. He said, that's how we act. Right. You, know, you can't reason with him. He believes in himself. Everything is about himself. He's a complete narcissist. Yeah. So so they came back to uh, they come back to Salisbury. They phoned Vicky that night and say, look, He's not coming home. He's been bailed. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got wider considerations, risk to the public, risk to other females. She had yep. come home probably three weeks after being admitted. So by profession, she was a physiotherapist. She was in the right. military as a captain, had resigned a commission and gone back to the same job as a civilian. 
Yeah. So she took herself back to Tidworth where she worked to the rehab centre and rehabbed herself back to physical health within a really short period of time. A compl- an amazing iron will, if you like, uh, within months physically. She you know, got herself back fully fit. Yeah, to, to what extent, um, if at all, did you share the disclosures that he'd made in the interview with her after then? Right, yeah. So this is where we come on to the, the second tricky part. So well, she's in a body brace at home. Obviously, she's got a five-week-old baby and a two-year-old child that she now, A, she can't breastfeed that she was, and she can't actually physically pick up either of yeah. them because she's this body brace. So her parents are helping. So Mark Lewis phones her that night to tell her what's happening. And she's really upset, really angry. Uh, you know, don't you understand you know, what my life is like? You must come home. So we agreed to go and see her the next day and uh, just explain to it. So what I policied was I would tell her that he was having an affair, a serious affair that he intended to leave her. I wouldn't yeah. tell her who, the, who that person was. Yeah. And I also would tell her that he denied the paternity of the baby boy. Right. I thought those things would show how dangerous he was from our perspective. Where we not only have to protect her, but have to protect the public and why we'd taken the actions we had regarding the bail conditions. Right. So she agreed to meet us. Uh, we went round. Uh, Dad was there. Uh, Stepmum took two children upstairs. And the house was a new built house, you know, like a showroom inside. Beautiful, really you know, lovely furniture. To the point when you look at the cream carpets, you know, you, we took our shoes off you know we didn't want to do that whole thing of walking across the carpets and leaving footprints behind yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah just to try and build that rapport and so we, we go in so i bit of chit chat you know to talk to the dad we give her those details and she absolutely breaks down right you know, she doesn't cry so much she sort of howls real guttural sort of moans and it, it's just the most uncomfortable place to be you know oh, God. me and mark kind of looking at each other going jesus you know, we don't really know what to say at this point it was just really heartbreaking it just yeah yeah cut right through yeah yeah so so, so are, are we saying are we saying then that you know that she had absolutely no idea that he was leading this kind of double life uh, or... well this is where we the way we come to where the case gets takes even more of a dark turn it becomes interesting to be honest so a dad calms her down and we're now looking for an early exit, to be fair. And you say, now, before we go, do you want to tell us anything else or anything else you want to say? She goes, well, she goes, now you've told me that you better tell, I better tell you it was only five days ago that uh, when Emil went to work on the Sunday evening, ready for Monday, I come down in the morning. There was a really strong smell of gas in the kitchen. And when I texted him about it, he said, have you tried putting the stove on? Oh, my God. So we were like, so that was probably the only time I think that the scales had come down from her eyes and she was honest with us. Yeah. So she's highly intelligent woman. She, in her heart, she knew, I think, what was going on, that he was deceiving her and cheating her and fleecing yeah. her of money. Right. But she was blinded by it. She was blinded by his manipulation, by the control he had on her over that he built up over a number of years. That real sort of coercive control that it gets to the point where she closes her eyes to anything and just yeah. accepts what he tells her and yeah. lives exactly as he tells her. And uh, really yeah. sad to see, but yeah, was, well, we've all seen it. Though, you, we've all no seen ground, it though, haven't yeah. we? You know, I think um, where you see that most frequently in policing is is in the 
blind, willful blindness by some parents towards their criminal offspring. You know, you see that a lot, don't yeah. you? Yeah, Where they just absolutely. cannot cannot yeah, see do. that their beloved child, who's now a prolific offender, yeah. um, could yeah. possibly be guilty of anything. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, yeah, you see yeah. it all the time, don't you? Unfortunately, but um, anyway, sorry, can I interrupt? But um... yeah, and that's what she was a victim of. She was a victim of that. She refused to believe he was guilty. She refused to believe that he had anything to do with it at all. She thought the police were wrong. Uh, so we come away from there with now two separate investigations uh, due to various issues going on at the force at that time. Emsit refused to take it. Uh, because she wasn't dead so the murder team uh, uh, there was no extra staff for me and I was told to deal with it in-house with general CID so there was three of us effectively me a DS and a DC doing it in addition to our day job so in the evenings at the weekends uh, where we could fit in time and where I could abstract other officers to help us right. we ran the whole inquiry between us uh, which caused all sorts of issues to be fair so we were left with those, you know, we had to find out who built the house. We had to find out who installed the gas hob, who did the mm -hmm. gas safety check. All of that stuff we did. We had to stay with every single person at the jump site. We had to find out about parachutes. We had to find the manufacturer of the parachute, which is in Florida. And we did all of that, you know, step by step. We just went through the whole thing. We built a massive case brick by brick. So there was no smoking gun. There was no... Yeah one piece of evidence which is why i think yeah. most of the anybody looks said we are you'll never get that home you'll never prove it you know, nobody was really that interested in it mm -hmm. uh, we got early cps advice who said you know, you'll have to go to every single nth degree of every single line mm -hmm. of investigation yeah which we did uh he didn't he he was so arrogant he was so mm -hmm. disbelieving that anything could touch him mm -hmm. uh, he was still controlling vicky uh what he did and what we subsequently know now is when he moved back into his ex-wife's, she then went to visit Vicky and said, look, you know, we've both been married to the same guy. We've both got children by him. He's a good guy. You know, the police probably have got it all wrong. I'll be your best mate. So yeah. any information we gave to Vicky then went back to a meal through his ex-wife. Um, so, right. So, you, so you've, had, you've had CPS advice and what was their, what was their view? Uh, they saw what we were, where we were coming from, but they said, you're, you're a long way from ever getting a file to us. Uh, you'd have to investigate absolutely every single aspect or angle of this yeah, and yeah, build yeah. a picture to prove why it would be, you know, does he have the opportunity? Does he have the motive? Does he have the ability? You know, you've got to rule out everybody else and every other yeah. possible connotation yeah. that could have led to yeah, these yeah. two incidents. So, because at the moment, so we did all that. Moment, you've what... got someone who's clearly a sociopath and a sex addict and just a thoroughly nasty piece of work, but you haven't necessarily got yeah. an attempted murderer, have you? Yeah. So, so like I said, because I because at that time Wiltshire we were in a funny phase. There was we got rid of the rank of DCI. Still don't. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Good. I was just checking. It was yeah. Still recording. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I had no sort of support or top cover at that point. So we had a crime review. XDCI and Paul, he said, look, Paul, I'll, uh, do you want to do a peer review? Do you want a couple of people to come in and just have a look over and see what they think, what you've done? I went, yeah, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. So we turned around 
I had five detective superintendents turned up one day. I had Paul oh, Camp from the NCA as a homicide lead. Oh, uh, Michael Tier from Avon Somerset. Uh, no pressure. No, Lloyd Gr- uh, Mr. Griffiths, I think, from South Wales. All good yeah. guys, but yeah, I was yeah, that was a bit of pride. I was like, Jesus Christ, really top SIOs. But reassuring. So we just give them the whole you know. shebang. Yeah, they're really good guys, actually. And I said, you know, I don't want any, you know, strategic overview. What I want is your operational knowledge. And A, am I doing the right thing? Because I'm fully in here. The three of us have thrown everything at this. And if we're down the wrong rabbit hole, you got to tell me. And they looked at it and went, no. They said, absolutely. They said, you were, they said it was wrong to have left it with you. They said it should have been with a murder team. He said, because it's a really complicated and involved inquiry. He said, yeah. but absolutely. And one thing we hadn't done, yeah, and this was part of the, the issues that raised. So the gas pipe, uh, when we looked at the, the text messages, she had said to him, there's a load of blood on it. Uh, so I'd wanted to remove the gas pipe from the house, spoke to the, uh, the CSI, the, the crime manager. And he said, well, there's no point for because they live there. It'll be their blood. It'll be their fingerprints. If he sees it, I'm not sending it off. Mm-hmm. So because I was doing this on top of my day job, I didn't give it enough thought. I didn't think about it. So I hadn't seized it. So yeah. when these supers reviewed it, I went, don't be an idiot, son. Yeah, get down there and seize it every day. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's crucial. I was like, yeah, of course. Right. Fair enough. So again, we went back to Vicky, got a Section 8 warrant. And again, and this was the odd thing with her. When you spoke to her, she was always accommodating, polite, professional, but just didn't really want to engage. Yeah. Uh, but she lets in the house. We seized that gas pipe, which proved an absolute goldmine of evidence eventually. Right. Uh, and we did that. We came back. So. And we carried on. They said, yeah, absolutely carry it on. Then as he left, I can't remember which one one of them said to, but he said, listen, he says, it's a good job, but you'll never get it home because uh, you've got too much other stuff ongoing. You can't do it as part of a general CIB. Mm. I think he said that tongue in cheek to perhaps light a bit of a fire under me to get me going because it did. I was like, bloody hell, I'll I'll get this home, whatever it takes. Yeah. And and just on that one, uh, and I don't want you to sort of throw anybody under the bus necessarily in Wiltshire in terms of your seniors, but. Um, given that you're sort of trying to deal with this on top of your day job, um, were you having sort of difficult conversations further on up the command chain, so to speak? Yeah, I was having conversations to try and get more staff and resources. Mm. I don't think people understood. I mean, I'm not, you know, I finished, I'm, I'm retired now, so I'm, I'm back as a civilian there, but I finished as a DI, and my whole career has been operational. And I'll put my hands up that whole sort of strategic side of stuff and manipulating people and getting what you want. I'm not very good at it. It's kind mm. of, this is what I'm doing. It's clearly what I need operationally. Yeah. If you don't understand it, then you're not worth speaking to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that probably worked against me. So I'd go to these men and go, of course I need more staff. It's obvious I need more staff. This is why. And mm. I'll be talking to you who didn't really understand it. Well, you know, there's other periods. So eventually I was just like, you know what, I'm fed up. I'm not wasting my time going to meetings to get knocked back. I'll just crack on and get on with it. I'd rather yeah. spend my time doing yeah. the job. Uh, so perhaps it's somewhat to my detriment. But and again, without a lack of, without perhaps a DCI who perhaps would have taken that battle on for you mm. or understood it, I was kind of left on my own. So, yeah, it was just a funny period. I think these things happen. They can't all come together at the wrong times, don't they? We were just left like that. So mm. I was working for a uniformed superintendent at the time. Mm. Uh, that person obviously had the whole division to run and a million and one other things to do as well so yeah, they didn't have the time to listen to each individual inquiry by me and at the beginning you know this hadn't really broken you know this was you know, something that sort of 
escalated and crept up. And the more you looked into it, the more serious it got. But it didn't start with that sort of big bang yeah. you get with a GBH or an Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's how we were. It developed and we were there. So, so yeah, so we see that, uh, we see that gas pipe and sent it off along with some tools. And the forensic guys come back and said, actually, we can forensically prove those tools were only ever used to loosen the gas nut to cause that gas leak. Really? Like, so these amazing. are tools that you and seized we, from the highest one, yeah. gar- garage or whatever? Or yeah. sort of, what, was it like some but sort of spanner or something? Or? So it was just, uh, yeah, the three or four sort of spanners and mixed in the utility room next door. And then part of that was a, uh, one of them was a mole grips, sort right. of those pliers you can get. Yeah, yeah. And he described them in an interview saying, you know, the second time we spoke to him, so we interviewed him a second time, he said, yeah, he said, there was a gas leak. I went home and I tried tightening it. I tried loosening it. It wouldn't, bu- it wouldn't budge. It was absolutely solid. Uh, and he described and drew a picture of what he used. And again, there we go. The very tool that we've taken from the utility room. So now he's admitted we've got his blood on the pipe. We've got the, the marks to prove it's only loosened. So yeah, he was happy with that. So then we looked into his text messages. We got a, a separate company, an outside company, to download it to the NCA. And what you found was he'd fleeced tens of thousands from Victoria. These were the days also of the payday loans, the Wonga companies. So he'd yeah. bounce in payday loan one to the next to the next. And then when he couldn't get it, he was taking money from her account. Uh, he was seeing sex workers a couple of times a week. He was going to swinging parties, you know, every week, every other week. Uh, then oh. women that he'd met there, he'd also see separately and go and see them at the weekend. He'd then sexually see his ex-wife for sex and still continue having sex with Vicky herself. Now, mm. a lot of this was, and what we noticed on the text, and again, we spoke to Age about this, he'd always want it unprotected for the sex workers, and he'd always ask to film it. And Age said, this you know, plays into his narcissism that, the filming will be of him, of look how great I am, look how good I am. Mm. And the the unprotected bit is just to give that extra thrill, that extra element of danger. Because mm. he just can't feel on the, your normal emotional level like we do. Mm. He, you know, he has to learn these things. So he has to be excited. And again, that tied into his, you know, his favoured sports with alpine downhill skiing, rock climbing. Those sort of more dangerous, those sports are a more dangerous element to them. Yeah. Again, just for him to feel something. So now we're looking at a real... A really dangerous man, you know, yeah, a real yeah. someone's actually certainly got the capability of trying to kill her, but proving it, you know, we literally have to prove he was the only person in both those incidences. And the house wasn't quite so bad; it was brand new. Yeah, there's only the four of them in there. And, you know, there was, you know, him, her, and two children. But even when you start to dig into the level we got, what we found was, so Sunday night, he had said to Vicky, "Look, you know." earlier it's too difficult traveling from Amesbury to Aldershot every day it's a bit tiring so I'll take a room on the in the section in the sergeant's mess there yeah it was it was a shag pad that's what he did yeah so on that Sunday he puts the children to bed he puts Vicky to bed he leaves about 10 o'clock having loosened the gas nut but he doesn't go to the sergeant's mess from there he goes straight around to his ex-wife where he has sex because we find text saying yeah I'm coming around I want sex now and what Adrian's saying is that's because he's so hyped up. He's so excited by it. Mm. That's his release. Mm. They think, Jesus Christ, you've started a gas leak with your two children asleep in the house. Oh it's just a different level of callousness and coldness, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so we proved that. Uh, we did the, the whole the parachute thing. We're really good people there. Like I say, a lot of ex-military, 
you know, tracking them down. They were all helpful, but again, being ex-military or military, they turned out they'd flown to all bloody four corners of the world in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, trying to get statements in Falklands and Canada and Dubai and the rest of it. So just, so uh, just that, on, the, strength on, the, test. on the parachute stuff, um, he, he, you said that um, the parachute she was using was a club parachute, i.e. not her own. Um, did he? Yeah, and again, did he prove that he had, he so had, had access to? Is, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this is honestly, mate. It's just well, we'll have to get this in in two hours. So that's fine. Don't worry. Because about she's it. so experienced, she has her own parachute. They're about five grand a pop, but on each parachute, they have a thing called an AAD, which is an automatic activation device. It's electro unconscious. It will calculate speed and height mm. and automatically deploy your parachute to save your life. Uh-huh. But every five years or so, you have to remove that from the parachute, send it back to manufacturers where they refurbish it and put new batteries in. Yep. So Emil knew her parachute was in for service, so she couldn't be used. Mm-hmm. So when we go back to the gas leak, so she comes down in the morning, strong smell of gas. Have you tried turning the gas hob on, love? Uh, funny enough, no. Uh, he eventually comes home in the afternoon. So on the way home, he says, oh, you've had a bad day. Why don't we go jumping next weekend? She's like, well, how can we go jumping? You know, got, he's, I'll help look after the children. So straight away, we've gone into plan B. She, she's not jumped for nine months because she stopped when she was pregnant. So that weekend, they go up to the parachute centre. Just so happened it was April and it was the time to renew subscriptions. So he says that like, you fill in your your subscription forms and all the costs. I'll go over to the to the store and I'll get you a parachute. So he goes over. So parachutes come in different sizes, and basically the the size they come in is the square footage of material above your head. So yep. if we were going to go do a tandem jump, we'd have a two two four. So it means it's two hundred twenty four square feet of material. The more experienced or smaller the lighter you are, the smaller parachute you have. So Vicky's personal parachute was a 99, I believe. That's literally 99 square feet. Some of the guys up there dropped down to 50 square feet. I mean, it's almost like having a hanky above your head, I'd imagine, yeah, just so they can go faster. Right. So the smallest that one had in the club there was 149. So he tries to take that, but the girl at the store goes, no, you can't have it because your you know, meal was six foot, 14, 15 stone. You know, big guy. She's, you're too big for this parachute. So he had to explain, no, it's not for me. It's for my wife. And he called across one of the instructors and said, I'm only booking it out for Vicky. So I went, yep, that's fine. You can have that. So then she comes across and meets him. Obviously, she ain't been there for a long time. So there's a lot of chit-chat with friends and you know, renewing acquaintances up there. When the little girl goes, mummy, I need, I need to go for a wee. So Emil says, don't worry about that. I'll take her. You stay with the baby in the car seat. So he takes it into the toilets, mm-hmm. uh, still holding the parachute. Uh, and what she says is, she said, I describe my daughter as a speed peer. And you yeah. put her on, boom, she's finished and she's off again. So yeah. when he's there for sort of two, three, four minutes, I find it a bit strange. So I go to the door and listen and I hear a sort of chinkling sound, but I don't say anything. I come away and he comes out a minute or so later. So she goes, he's in there roughly five, five and a bit minutes. Mm-hmm which is odd. So he comes out and then it's, this is a Saturday and they say, right, there is no jumping today. Cloud cover's not lifting. Uh, so we'll have to try again tomorrow. So she then says, look, let's put the parachute back, back 
hand it back into store or go home. He says, no, we're not doing that. Uh, you've got your own locker here. We'll just put it in your own personal locker. Then tomorrow you've not got to book it out again. Right. So she goes to challenge him on this. He shuts her down, says, look, you know, I've told you what we're doing. And she just acquiesces again. They put the parachute in her locker and mm. they go home. But if they had jumped that day, those two children would have been out in the front apron watching their mum jump out of the aeroplane. Mm. So they would have seen that crash. Oh. Unbelievable, isn't it? Just so they go home. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's just a different level altogether. So they go home, regular sort of Saturday night, you know, meal, put the kids to bed. The Sunday, he says, look, I'm not really feeling it. You go up. I'll stay at home with the kids. So again, because the baby is five weeks old and she's breastfeeding, and another quirk of the case that we found out is he insisted. So he had three partners. He had a partner in South Africa, a wife in England, and then Vicky. And each time he'd had two children with them. And each time he'd insisted, you must breastfeed. You can't use formula. You can't use anything that has to be breast milk and we found that out when we did a web search so the day before she jumped he was doing a web a web search for wet nurses oh, so women that could supply breast milk really? so again this is all these little facts of what tied in eventually to give us the case of saying this is why it's him again so that meticulously review of all the, the forensic data download and the phone messages so she goes up on the sunday so she's having to express milk while she's there, which is obviously uncomfortable for her. Mm -hmm. So she's texting and saying, look, you know, it's awkward, it's difficult. I'm having to find somewhere quiet to express milk. I think I might just call it a day and come home. He's like, no, no, definitely stay there. You'll enjoy it. Jump twice. So she wow. stays. So about three o'clock that afternoon, they say it's, the cloud cover's lifted a little bit. We can go to 4,000 feet. And she gets on board. Uh, so she gets on board the plane. She's the last out. She deploys her parachute. The main one doesn't work. It's been tangled up deliberately. So she cuts it away. Someone who jumps before her sees her fall past him. So he diverts and tries to follow her to the ground. And that's when she deploys her reserve. That doesn't work. And he follows her. Uh, and then we learn how she gets airlifted to the hospital with all those injuries. So it's not a case. They phone a meal. It's not a case that the lines have been cut then. They've just been tampered no. with to make them yeah. uh, unserviceable. Yeah, so what we think is so the main parachute, so your backpack, your parachute pack is just like a, a rucksack on your back. So mm. you have the parachute that's folded on top and underneath it, all the lines attached the parachute canopy to the pack. Mm. They're folded in like an S shape underneath. Yep. So you would have taken out the parachute and just wraps lines around them then stuffed it back in right so you couldn't tell from the outside so when you deploy it it's completely tangled so you can't fly it because what yeah. they say when you deploy your parachute you have to look up it should be a rectangular piece of material above you because mm. you actually fly it you don't just you know you're not just passive mm. so if it's not then you have to cut it away because it won't work and then the slinks what you've done is you put your hands down the side you could remove two of them but you can nice. remove any you want but he'd remove two of them so the reserve wouldn't work either. So that's what he'd done to her parachute. Oh, and what we've done through further inquiries is we found a chief rigger who now works at Netherraven, but for the, for the army side of it, having previously worked for the civilian side. He said, oh, yeah, he said, not only do I, I'm a chief rigger, I run training courses for people that want to be, mm -hmm. and I can give you the class notes. So when Emil was a student of mine, so oh, he was trained to be a chief rigger. 
Right. So I think, Jesus Christ. So he knows, he knows how exactly. to do it intimately. He knows exactly yeah. how to do it. So, so I'm guessing then, that at this point then, once you've got, once the evidence is, is mounting, presumably you're going back to the CPS then periodically to say, right, um, this yeah, is they were really, Yeah, they were really good, to be fair, CPS at that point. So we used a serious case unit down in Eastleigh. Uh, Ian and Amanda there. And they would keep an eye on saying, you know, bottom this up, bottom that out, bottom everything. So we'd done two, in, we'd done an initial interview with Emil. We brought him back and interviewed him a second time. Uh, we, he had a solicitor this time. Again, he still spoke. He denied everything about the, the parachute. Uh, then we used Adrian, we used Gary Shaw from the NCA to best give interviewer lead as mm-hmm. to how best to structure it. And he was saying, look, you know, with his personality, just keep the second one really open again and just let him speak. And he mm. did. He did that whole thing of when he was comfortably would speak, when he couldn't answer, he'd say no comment. So he had that real mishmash mm. of answers, and uh, yeah. that that played in our favour, to be honest. And then what we did was we gathered all once we got all the evidence back. So, so just to backtrack a little bit, we traced the girlfriend that he was infatuated with, uh, and that turned out he'd been skiing with the army in Austria straight onto tinder as he does meets mm. this girl who's also into skydiving and what starts off as a uh, sort of just a casual sexual relationship becomes quickly one of infatuation mm. where he is whatsapping out hundreds and thousands of times a day uh, so back in you know when you go back to the back end of the year and at the beginning of that year she was uh, Vicky was heavily pregnant she gave birth in March I think February March he'd spent every day up to Christmas Eve with this girl abroad, then come home. Then he'd gone back again for New Year's Eve to spend New Year's Eve with her. Uh, and then he'd come back home and then he brought her back to the UK for Valentine's Day and hosted her at the sergeant's mess mm-hmm. where he'd taken a tango dance in to watch Fifty Shades of Grey while his wife's at home, eight months pregnant, oh, saying, God. I've got no money, got no food in the house, need some help. And there he is, just having the right old time with his latest girlfriend. What a, ch- what a charmer, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then she left the Austrian girl. She went, got a job in America. So we got a little trip out to America to go and speak to her, which was nice. amazing, to be fair. She was working just south of uh, Chicago in a little town there. So she was far enough away to keep sort of uh, keeping my arm's length. But you could see the whole pattern of sucking her in and manipulating what was happening again yeah yeah, yeah. he backed himself into a corner by saying that he was divorced his wife had had an affair and had this baby and he was going to leave her as soon as the baby was born all of it utter lies Mm. and she was challenging some of that and he was trying to the usual thing of being angry with her and just trying to it hadn't quite worked so she gave us a statement uh, quite happily then bizarrely just one of those strange things because it was a really small police force you know, 30 cops in this town mm-hmm. i said look now i'd like to download her phone and he goes no we can't do that here paul he goes we're uh, too small he goes but we've got some friends up the road uh in F- an fbi field office i'll give them a ring so literally the, an hour later like three guys turn up in gray suits in this black suburban suv <laughs> they come in with a suitcase and take the phone off me Go into a separate office. Two hours later, come back. There's the phone. There's a complete download. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Brilliant. Get back in the car and done. Brilliant. So within a couple of hours, just whatever they had in that suitcase, just <laughs> downloaded the whole we, thing. We need a few of those. Thanks now. very much. <laughs> yeah. And I got 
got himself an FBI patch out of it as well. Just oh. <laughs> so yeah, so we so we put together the whole file in totally in eleven months. Right. Uh, where we've done apps, we've done everything. We've been and just everywhere. To, and just to rem- remember, this is on top of your day job as running a CID team in Salisbury. Yes. I mean, that's mental. Yeah. Oh God, it, you must have. I'm uh, to say, like, had a few sleepless nights. I'm sure. Oh, it, it was three years of hell, to be honest. But Mark and Maddie, the two that were involved in it, you know, I can't praise them enough. I genuinely, you know, at the end of this, you know, both of them were ill with stress-related issues because they were on that treadmill for three months. It's again, they did a lot of the work, but again, they had day jobs as well. Mm. So we were just a little threesome there, just flat out with it. But uh, oh, this yeah, is they, one they of the got most it heroic. totally heroic investigations I've ever um, heard of, you know, because normally you would expect these sort of investigations to be managed by a serious and, you know, a sort of a murder investigation team or a, uh, you know, a dedicated serious crime team or something that had the time and the resources and, um, but to do this is not your day job, but you really deserve a massive, massive pat on the back. Amazing. And it was, it was, it just, I say, the challenges the hurdles the twists were just incredible it's just so much the detail is unbelievable but so we gave it to them in 11 months and they sat on it then probably for another 10 months the so they reviewed it yeah and in the meantime vicky's getting really she's really fed up with it she's annoyed with it and she says to me that at one point she says just drop it just drop it i can divorce him and but i don't want to have to tell the kids he's trying to kill them or mm. kill me and I said, but that's the point I said I, that's why we can't drop it because that's what he's trying to do uh, but again her whole life has been put on hold masses of masses of pressed interest even at an early stage daily mail with door stuff in a in a body brace and putting a picture in the paper so she was really anti the media at the time and, and he, hadn't even, so he hadn't even been charged at this stage so. no no no, and they dug out pictures off Facebook of them at a military ball and put those in the paper and yeah, done all sorts as they do because it, mm-hmm. it, the story was interesting for them. But for her, it was just you know, her life was on hold. And again, in addition to that, we had the whole the child protection issues of just him, of her, of his previous wife. Yeah. So I had all those running in the background. Uh, Social workers, social workers really good. Again, Arlene, social worker, she was a really experienced lady, and she said to me, "Let's go." Was he allowed to have? Uh, was he allowed to have any contact with the children? He tried. He tr- he wanted contact with the children. Uh, so prior to charge, he was allowed contact. I think once a week, or once a fortnight, at a contact centre. Mm-hmm. So he would turn up, and then. Vicky would turn up and the two children would be in the room with him and the social worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was all he was allowed, but he was continually trying to manipulate it. Uh, Arlene had to ask me to go to child protection conferences because he would come and berate them and say, listen, this is all rubbish. I'm going to be acquitted. When I do, I'm going to sue you. You've lied to my children. You've told them on exercise. That's not true. I'm going to personally sue you. And that would, some of the managers, the social mm. service managers were really worried about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll say, look, she goes, you got to come here and help me, back me up. And you know, I say, look, you know, this is an attempted murder. And this is a wider consideration that you can't allow to have contact with children. So mm, yeah. they would, then he tried to get me thrown out, says I was a prosecution witness. I wasn't allowed to be there. Oh, and it was just, 
then the army didn't help either. Very manipulative man. He was, and they, his adjutant captain was acting as welfare for both Vicky and Emil at the same time. And he was clearly sucked in by Emil and innocent. Um, so I raised that with the CO and pretty much got told, wind your neck in, it's, he's innocent till proven guilty. Nothing to do with police. We'll manage our in-house as we see fit. Uh, so I said, okay. So then we got to the point, so we're doing all that. And Arlene said, the army didn't know what to do with him. They'd given him a couple of months off over Christmas to go home to South Africa. Then Arlene said to me, oh, she goes, I had a meeting with Vicky and the children. She's applied to get a passport, the oh, little God. boy. Oh, God. <laughs> so then I do some checks and I find she's got a passport. The little girl's got a passport. So it's like, she's going to go there and she, she's going to take the kids to South Africa with him. So I go and visit her and I, and I said to her, look, you know, as difficult as our relationship has been, it's probably get worse. I said, you can go to South Africa. I said, I can't stop you. I advise against it. I said, but your children won't leave. I said, if you go to any airport, I'll have them PPO'd. Yeah. I said, we'll take them into police protection and they'll go to social services and they'll be taken away from you. You can't go to South You can't yeah. take them to South Africa. Yeah, quite and right. She was like, okay, yeah. I, under I understand that. Thank you. You can now leave. <laughs> uh, so she never did. She never left. She never tried to take them to an airport, but I have no doubt she would have done I hadn't intervened so again we had all this ongoing and then we got a real break so cps were unsure of it they liked it but that whole thing of do we commit to a trial on this and they gave it to a barrister to review a chap called mr michael bose uh, got his own chambers up in london really eminent i think he's a judge now to be fair uh, really eminent barrister generally does either complicated murder you know or fraud he mm -hmm. likes the detail things with yeah. a lot of detail in yeah. And he reviewed it and he said, absolutely prosecutable. And he said, so much so, he said, I want to keep the brief. He said, I'll prosecute it. Brilliant. So he was like, that's amazing. So I have someone that good and want yeah. to do it and get yeah, it. And yeah, yeah. so we worked with him. So, uh, yeah, so we come to trial. As and you can imagine, whole... a lot of barristers looking at it and thinking, oh, God, this is a right old bag of rats. You know what I mean? In terms of yeah. not the not yeah. the quality, the, the work you've done, fantastic work, but just, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of circumstantial stuff, a lot of kind of bad character stuff, but but yeah, no fair yeah. play, to, fair play to him to want to take it on. Yeah. And to put that, you know, we knew it inside out, we knew the detail, but to put all that into four or five weeks in front of twelve people in the jury that never heard anything before, and get them to understand it—that's yeah. a hell of a job. So yeah, no, he, you know, he took it by the horns and uh, ran with it. Hannah was his junior, brilliant brilliant barristers and like I say, I've had good and bad barristers over the years hmm. some that sort of look down on you some that work with you and I'd say I can't speak highly enough of him he was just totally wanting our input and mm -hmm. saying how he was going to run it and he just yeah the way he grasped the details astounding to be fair <laughs> the yeah. quickness he grasped the details very impressive uh, aren't they yes yeah so so eventually we get to trial we go to Winchester Crown Court uh, was scheduled for five weeks. They bring down Mr. Nigel Sweeney from the Old Bailey. Uh, Emil gets a lady, I can't remember her name, her, lady's, her name's gone, but she was a Old Bailey barrister. I want to say late 50s, early 60s, mm -hmm. probably one of the first female barristers. Right. Hard as nails, to be fair. Good, but yeah. very, for my, made our lives hell, but yeah. Yeah, as she yeah. would do because she wasn't there to make our lives easy, was she? No. Uh, and so we started, yeah, and she would, you know, and we uh, just, I look back at it now, you know, we turned up on, got ourselves a little office, 
and we're there with all our exhibits, statements, and index books. You know, there was another, I think it was a Dorset M6 trial running up, and they turn up with homes and laptops and IT, and we're turning up with bloody index books and all sorts, you know, just real old school, like a couple of carrot crunchers, really. Just <laughs> We stole one of the CJU ladies and said, right, you know, we're going to lock you in this room because you know where everything is. <laughs> And you'll give us a statement. To go, yeah. I said, I'll keep feeding you with food and coffee all day, but please. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. And she obviously saw that uh, barrister. So she knew she just yanked our chain every day. You know, Can I see this exhibit, that exhibit, this statement, that statement? And then she'd moan. We hadn't given her what she asked for. We did. Mm-hmm. But she was just trying to you know, knock us off our stride. And eventually yeah. what we said was, we'll give you whatever you want, but you, you can put it in writing. Put it in mm-hmm. writing and you'll sign for it when we give it to you because I'm not being, you know, you keep trying to embarrass us in front of the judge by saying we're not giving you stuff. We know the game you're playing, so we'll do it that way. So, mm-hmm. but she saw that you know we couldn't call it up at the, at the press of a button. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a manual search. So, yeah. So we did all that. The the inter the all the witnesses were really good. But again, you know, it gave me issues there that came back to bite me slightly because a lot of these people, what I say, were military guys and girls. A lot of them have been in Gulf War, been in Iraq seen friends die earned mm. medals never been in the court in their lives mm. and when they're given their evidence just what they saw what they did and that whole barrister thing of are you sure are you sure your recollection is true i don't think it's true calling you a liar without using the word liar mm. they were outraged by it you know, they yeah, were like yeah. you know i'm not some drunken idiot with 16 pints of stella on board trying to remember what i did i am you know, I fought for Queen and Country. I'm telling yeah, you the truth. Yeah, Why would yeah. you question that? Yeah, yeah. So your barrister's worst nightmare, isn't it? Really, it's like, it's yeah. like get get this person off out of the witness box quickly. Yeah. yeah. So, so they come out really angry, a lot of them. And then I said after the first one, we had to go to second trial. And I had to ring them up saying, you know, you said you'd never do that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 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 we went through. We we had a, a really good trial up to that point. Uh, and then Vicky, you know, the star of the show, really was to give evidence. So I picked up that morning myself personally because she'd fallen out with the flow and for whatever reason so everything to try and keep on board and by that time after the charge I'd gone back to the CEO and said to him I think the captain is sharing information between Emil and Vicky and if I find it is I said I'm going to nick him and I'm going to put it in the papers so sort your welfare service out properly and then the army welfare service stepped in brilliant service people and they assigned two independent people, you know, one to me, one to Vicky, as it should have been, just to look after their welfare. Yeah. So I rock up. She's got a welfare lady there. We drive from her home to Winchester. Fairly quiet journey, a little bit of small talk. I mean, Vicky's quite a cold character. That'd be horrible. She's very, she's very professional. She's very polite. But I could never build that rapport. I never mm. felt I had a, a connection with her in any way. It's, mm. uh, I think. You know, some of that is her personality and some of that you know, a lot of it is a situation she found herself in to be fair yeah uh but she didn't say anything you know would you go to court yes will you give evidence yes okay so i pick her up i take her along we take her underground so to avoid the press scrum outside because we're getting 20 30 reporters a day yeah i managed to take her up through the back introduce her to the barristers uh and she comes up she gives her evidence you know, and she starts off she has a pop at the press and says you know they doorstep me they don't care about me they're trying to ruin my life i'm not happy with them so fair enough and then she just ripped into the police investigation and she oh, went really i tried she goes 
I tried to change my story. I tried to tell the police. They refused to allow me to change my story. Uh, the ABE, the VRI interviews we'd done, we'd converted to MG11s. Uh, she said they didn't let me read my statement. They just made me sign it straight away. I was given no time to do it. She goes, the family liaison, they, they appointed me. I tried to tell him numerous times I wanted to change my account, that, you know, when I gave my... When, when she account, said she wanted to angry. change her account, sorry, when she said she wanted to change her account, did she want to try and um, give Emil uh, an alibi or a, a kind of a, a way out, so to speak? Yeah, I think she was looking for a way out because what she wanted to say is when they did that ABE of me, she goes, I was just really, really angry. So I painted it blacker. You know, I painted a blacker picture than what it would have been. She goes, I just wanted to hurt him at that point. Yeah, and we had checked that. We had gone back. I can say, but is what you said the truth? Is it the you know, are the facts true? Yeah, they are the truth. But to have her say that in front of the jury, you know, how could a jury then convict him when yeah. even the wife standing up and saying, I'm not yeah. sure, I don't think, you know, she didn't say he was innocent, but mm. she did enough to really throw that shadow yeah. of doubt over it. So the case gets stopped at that point. Uh, we applied to treat her as a hostile witness, which is granted uh, all the police officers three of us are thrown out of court and said we're not allowed to back in while she's given evidence mm. any questions or anything to do with it has to go through the judge that's arrange a private taxi to take her home that night because i wasn't even allowed to take her home or get another officer to take her home uh so yeah so that's what she did uh really it was gut-wrenching proof, I'm proof as, if, as if proof was ever needed that you know there is literally no helping some people isn't there yeah no absolutely so she finishes that. They do the summings up. I'm ever the optimist, thinking, well, I might get, you know, still in with a chance of a in chance with a conviction. The jury are out for two weeks. Uh, nothing at all. Some questions coming back, and then we're waiting there one day, and uh, all of a sudden, a tannoy. Can we have an ambulance? Uh, so the ambulance turns up. One of the jurors has had a panic attack, so she gets taken in the ambulance. And where Winchester is, so you've got the high street, then you've got the court, then you've got the hill. The top mm. of the hill was the hospital. So she gets taken to hospital and is discharged, never comes back. So the judge then goes, okay, we'll break for tomorrow. So come, we'll come back in next day. So we're sitting there in the morning, waiting for them to go back and deliberate. All of a sudden, another ambulance is called. The jury four woman's had an asthma attack. So she gets an ambulance. She goes up the hill to the hospital, gets discharged, never comes back. So the judge calls five, the 10 of them back in and says, right, okay, we now need to consider what we're going to do and the lady at the front puts her hands up and says excuse me she goes you told me this trial would be five weeks we've been here eight weeks and i'm due to leave tomorrow she goes on a I booked a family holiday to america spent thousands you know i really can't be here any longer the judge goes no fair enough i did say it five weeks you're correct you're discharged so she leaves oh god so now i'm left with nine people oh, shit. <laughs> and they go that is the lowest apparently you can go uh so he sends them out again and they come back shortly after a couple of hours later and say, look, and he says, can you find any, they say, we can find no verdicts on any of the charges. Now, regarding Chobie, charge him with attempted murder on a parachute for Vicky, attempted murder on a gas leak for Vicky. But regarding children, we charged him with criminal damage likely to endanger life. Mm-hmm. And what Mr. Bose had said, he said, he said, no jury will ever convict him of deliberately trying to murder his children like that because it's just a step too much to have someone that evil and that horrible and to do mm. that. Mm. He said, uh, it just went, he said, my experience is, he said they were really struggling. It's just not a charge or get home. 
we yeah. don't need it because we can get the others home. So we've done that. So yeah, so we've got hung jury. Uh, we went out very deflated. Uh, we'd already prepped CPS, knowing it was heading that way, and they had agreed to go for a retrial. So we applied immediately for a retrial. Uh, that was granted. Both barristers and the judge said they would retain the case. Mm-hmm. They would sit again. Uh, so in three months' time, we went again. Oh, bloody uh, hell. You must, have, you must have been thinking this is like some dreadful grindhog day kind of thing. Oh, uh, it was. I mean, because the text you know, the, the text and WhatsApp messages we got, luckily we got hold of an analyst. Uh, so in the meantime, whilst we were doing the investigation after the first year, the three of us got split up. Mark got assigned to MC, a murder team. Maddie had gone to a, a human exploitation team. And I was left, actually, I've been moved to a proactive team. So now we weren't even in the same we were all over the county, so we had to meet oh, at convenient God. police stations on days. So the benefit of that, as it turned out, was Mark said, oh, we've got all these WhatsApp messages and we need to put them in some sort of viewable, readable format. Mm-hmm. And we can't do it. It's just beyond us. He said, but we're really quiet at the moment. And the analyst said she'd have a look at it. So I said, look, get the analyst to look at it and start it. And once she's done a day or two on it, I'll then go cap in hand to the superintendent of MC and say, look, I know I've been cheeky and borrowed her, but can I carry on? <laughs> Yeah. So she started, and that's what I did. And I went, she goes, Yeah, I know what you're doing, cheeky bugger. But yeah, all right. She goes, We're quiet at the moment. You have it. So that to me, that whole thing that analysts do is like, It's a bit of a game, black bit of a game changer, isn't it? Yeah. So she put everything in. And what we ended up with was a chronological timeline. I think it was 200 pages of back to back WhatsApp and texts across A3 of him, of his web searches, of his whatsapp messages and of his text messages to all the people like vicky to his girlfriend to all the sex workers and what we've done on the first it's really trial quite damning is isn't it yeah and we we read it got read out literally from beginning to end it took two, two days to read it out we read the whole thing but the decision we made on the first trial was to take out the web searches for sex workers mm. because we thought that would just be humiliating for vicky and it didn't add a lot but at the end of the first trial the defence had twisted it really quite cleverly. And they said, basically, Emil was a pantomime villain, financially incontinent, and really mm-hmm. sort of downplayed the whole seriousness of his narcissism. Mm-hmm. So he said, look, if we're going to show him for what he really is, whether it hurts Vicky or not, we're going to have to put it all in. So for the second trial, we put it all back in. Yeah. Uh, and you're talking, you know, sex, you know, when you're talking of sex workers two, three times a week, £50 minimum ago, you know, it's financially a burden, it's yeah. the whole thing. So we put all that in and that really worked, I think, on the second trial, it, it showed. Then also on the second trial, I was asked to give evidence. I didn't on the first trial. Uh, I had a couple of questions written down and that was it, really sort of generic, nothing much, and then asked to leave. Uh, the second trial, they asked me to give them a copy of the, interview, the investigation log, the computer log, but redact it and only show the times we'd contacted Vicky. And Maddie had diligently, in, in addition to every other person, had contacted every couple of weeks just to keep in touch, keep her updated, let her know what's happening. And they tried to use that as this was the police effectively controlling the victim and getting her to do what we wanted to do. Mm. But I'd said, no, that's completely wrong. And I just went on to, I stayed away from any sort of policies or powers or procedures and just then spoke about my experience of dealing with victims of domestic abuse how they often go back to their offender perpetrator how they're 
boxed into a corner where they can see their way out. And it's mm. not unusual. Please deal with this up and down the country all the day time. In and day out, People yeah. withdraw. I said, mm. and this is the reality. And this is why we try and do what we do. And I just went through some of the policy decisions and just explained that. And the judge let me run. Uh, the defence asked me the question, opened the door, and I ran with it. And I was there for a good hour, a couple of hours, just mm. explaining this is why we do what we do and how difficult it is and the realities of dealing with victims that have been, I say, boxed into a corner through coercive abuse. And I said, it's not about black eyes and broken arms. It's you know what you wear, what you look like, your friends, your family, mm-hmm. the isolation. Yeah. I said, it's all of this. And it just, and that had happened after Vicky had given her evidence. And she'd gone down the same line again accused mm-hmm. the police of not helping her yeah. so it just gives some balance to that mm-hmm. uh, so yeah so i say we finished that we finished that trial then uh jury were out bizarrely the second trial was uh so first trial was nine females three males second trial was nine males three females the total opposite mm-hmm. and first trial Emil had been really when he gave evidence really flirtatious uh really cringe and embarrassing to be honest Mm. Uh, real sort of ooh. to the point I think when we had a break someone must have spoken to him because he tried to be more professional at the end calm yourself but he didn't get yeah he didn't get the emotion so there was one bit when he's giving evidence and he's trying to explain how when him and Vicky got together early on and whatever she'd got pregnant had a miscarriage now someone's obviously told him this is you know this is a really sad story and a sad account so you can see him looking down, trying to force a tear and trying to you know, look sad. But when he's talking about his wife falling 4,000 feet and she's lying in an ITU bed and he's texting his girlfriend in, in America 300 times, I'm glad this is not you and I want to be with you. He doesn't get that as a sad story that his wife's no. actually there. <laughs> no. And he just has no emotional intelligence with that at all. And again, he spent most of the trial through chewing gum, chilling out, relaxing. There was one point he was downstairs on the public landing. There was a female, I think she was a prison officer and she was at court on trial for whatever. And he was chatting her up. He's uh, putting lines into it. Just yeah. on a different level. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a, yeah, and there was another point where like I said we had 20, 30 press there a day and there was a female journalist who pulled me aside one day in her 20s, blonde, very pretty. He said, oh, he started following me on Twitter and tried to contact me. What do you think? You can hear the evidence. What, what, what do, you do you think? think? What it's do you just, think? Yeah. You're, you're on trial for attempted murder, going to prison for life if convicted. But actually, you look at the press office and think, who can I chat up there? Who's attractive? It was just on a different level. It really, really scary, was. isn't it? Scary. But there's lots of people. Yeah. There's lots of people out there like that. They want the poor. I mean, I know that yeah. he's, an, he's an extreme, isn't he? But you only have to look at, uh, you know, we've got lots of friends or people, friends of friends who've, uh, women who find themselves unexpectedly single, maybe in their 30s or 40s, and uh, they go on the dating scene. And there's loads of of people like that, blokes like that out there, aren't there? Yeah. Who are just complete arseholes. Who are uh, out there (laughs) shagging as many women as they possibly can, spinning them a line uh, of, you know, portraying themselves as a victim because their nasty ex-wife, you know, did this or that. And actually they were the ones who, who, uh, yeah, there's lots of them out there, aren't there? But but he is just, uh, he's an extreme, isn't he? He is, because he's just every aspect of his, but 
that is him. He's, he's just out for himself in every aspect. I was saying a, a second trial, I see we've got everyone back there again. Just, you know, technology was a nightmare the first time. So the second trial, we had someone download all our photographs and uh, videos onto one standing hard drive and we hardwired it into monitors mm-hmm. in front of the jury as we tried using Bluetooth on the first trial. That was just embarrassing. You know, it, it works some of the time, doesn't work, flickers mm-hmm. in and out. Mm-hmm. The judge is scowling at you like you're some sort of half-wit. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing. It's just you want to die. So yeah, the second yeah. time, I'm not, so we got all that sorted. And it ran a lot. The second trial did run a lot smoother for us, to be honest. And the jury went out. They, like I say, funny enough, they came back with a unanimous decision really quickly on the two attempt murders. But the, the, the criminal damage, like to endangered life to children, that still went to majority. Really? Even on those. It just, it just proved what Mr. Bowes was saying. That for whatever reason, juries would be really difficult to so guilty, find that. But guilty yeah, they, on all they, charges then, yeah? Guilty on all charges, which was Brilliant. probably one of the best days of my life, to be honest. Brilliant. Just, oh, how did you feel whenever they, uh, when the jury foreman stood up and said guilty? It's just the, it's the relief, isn't it? It's, and you just think, yeah. The result of all that hard work, you want to shout and scream, to be fair. Then, yeah. You know, be professional, be professional. I mean, Maddie had a head in her hands. Mark was just out of it days, I think. I think he'd quite believe it. Vicky had turned up on the day and just stood stone-faced. Emil was stone-faced, no reaction whatsoever. He was like, sorry, give him a little smile. There you go. That's so clever now. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, and the judge sent him to thirty-six years. Up, you can chat up the uh, pr- you can chat up the female prison officers, mate. You know, see how you get on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So even, uh, even that didn't stop him. That was yeah, he? So was he? There. Was he? Uh, was he um, sentenced straight away, or did he have? Uh, was he um, remanded no, for, he was, there for was reports? A gap. Yeah, yeah, they remanded him for reports. He went up the road to Winchester Prison. Uh, it's an old. Sort of an ancient prison so that you can have phone calls on there but the phones are on the wings still so you can't have them in the cell so we do a bit of work and straight away he's phoning vicky every time he gets out there uh trying to rein her back in asking for access to her medical records because what they've done is they never ran a defense of suicide but they mentioned the word suicide and suicidal and just left it there hanging sort of you know subliminal yeah. messaging almost yeah uh and he was asking for that. And we're like, Jesus, even now he's waiting to go to get sentenced. He's trying to access her. Uh, she didn't really want to engage with us at all. Uh, but he comes back to you, get sentenced. I say he gets 36 years, minimum of 18, has to serve. 36 years, Jesus. Yeah, and he has been made a danger to the public as well. Uh, so then we write social services right to Vicky and say, will you visit him? I intend to take the kids. And she said, no, absolutely not. And that once he left, once he got sentenced, he's shortly after got moved up north to Staffordshire to prison there. And I think that distance allowed her to start to break away. And she subsequently written a book. Uh, and she describes herself as a survivor rather than as a victim. Right. Okay. So I think she's now, she's starting to see the truth, of what it is. You know, she's in a, a better relationship now. I understand. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it took that for her to realise actually, yeah, I'll just turn you know what? in I would love to I'd love to have, I'd love to have a chat with her on the podcast. I mean I don't know if she would talk to me, but um it would be really fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I've never spoken Yeah. Oh, it would. I've never spoken to her since, to be fair. Uh we offered to speak to her afterwards, 
uh, once the trial had finished and she never took us up on the offer, she did get a media consultant to represent her. Mm. Uh, I think she had a little bit on the TV at the time. Mm. She didn't come across the best. She came across as quite cold there. But you know, but yeah, she, it would be fascinating to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, again, it's that whole sort of, you know, she's professional, she's intelligent, she's, you know, she's middle class. She's not the sort of person you think would be sucked into this sort of thing or would I mean I'm guessing it, so yeah. I'm guessing that she's been on something of a psychological journey herself since the conviction yeah. in so much as she now I mean I don't know I'm guessing given the fact that she described herself as a survivor um because that but that can mean all sorts of things doesn't can't it um yeah you know uh, I if she could be saying I survived a horrible time at the hands of the nasty police couldn't I couldn't she? Um, so yeah. it'll be interesting to know what she means by that. But assuming for a moment that that she has had sort of a, a growing uh, realization that that she was a victim of extreme mental cruelty and attempted murder, then yeah, it'd be fascinating yeah. to have that conversation with her. It would be because I mean, the children now are coming up to they were two then were back in two thousand eighteen, so they're hitting that sort of eight, nine, ten mark now. So they'll be on the internet, won't they? And they can look mm. up dad's name and there's so much on there about it. And, you know, yeah. It's not something she can keep from them or even no. you know, wait till they're sort of 18 to tell them they're going to find out much earlier. So yeah. again, it's going to be difficult for her for a long time, isn't it? I think. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, all I can say, mate, is well done you and well done to your team. And I'm sure they'll listen to this. Uh, massive, massive respect to, to the, particularly to the three no, of you. Thank you. Who were the key people there? Um, slightly, I've got to say it. If you want, I will. Um, slightly shameful um, that you were left holding that um, in the way that you were for so long. I firmly believe you should have been given a lot more support and resources with that. Um, I'm sure there's reasons why, but um, uh, but well done you to persevere with it and to get the result that you richly deserved. Uh, and well done to your, your analyst as well. It sounds like she did a fantastic job there. Um, oh, it's amazing. Together. It was amazing, yeah. Um, yeah, it did. Because I know, you know, I ran, I ran the murder um, investigation uh, sort of intelligence team, so I understand the, the amount of work that, that you need to do around this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's meticulous and time-consuming, and but it can be incredibly powerful when it, it gets put in front of a jury in the right format, and then it tells that story, doesn't it? Um, it does tell it for you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, paints a picture, doesn't yeah. it? But, yeah. Um, so, um, so since then, you've left the job and you've gone back as a um, uh, investigative uh, trainer. Is that right? So yeah, so I'm a detective academy manager. I mean, right. I say that it's, it's an academy of one, just me. But it's okay. uh, yeah, it's just to try and help you know get the sort out of the training, keep on top of the sort of, you know, like everybody else who's struggling to get detectives. Yeah. Where do you get them? How do you train them? You know, you can't yeah. keep taking from the the uniform boys and girls. You know, really young and you know those resources are stretched. So it's yeah. just yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. trying. We, you know, we've lost loads of experience, so it's trying to get people to work. It's a bit easier in Wiltshire because it's such a small force, and you can get people to share that experience and mm. work together. You know, yeah. there is experience within the cohort, you know, the DID, DCI cohort, but not necessarily individually. So it's just all yeah. of that really trying to pull that together and yeah. using some of the, my experience and mistakes I've made to try and perhaps steer them away from yeah. some of those sort of things. So, well, it's in very, very safe hands, I would suggest, with you. And um, 
Yeah, it's uh, you've you've clearly had a fascinating career, and and I do, and I know I keep on banging on about this, but this is my great fear: the way that the organisation is going or has gone, that we're losing so much experience. People, there was a time, wasn't there, when people like you yeah. were? I'm not going to say ten a penny, but there was a lot of polls. There was a lot, of, yeah. Out there, yeah. weren't there? A lot of yeah. a lot of a few grey a lot of grey hairs, um, male and female. And who'd been around a long time, who had uh, the scars of many years of of um, successes and fuck ups to, yeah. to to kind of fall back on. These are not skills that you learn overnight, are they? Um, no, no, it's a result of ex- years of experience, isn't it? Like saying court trials and all that sort of stuff that you win and you lose. Yeah, actually, but you learn from each time, and when you've got those people around you, you can learn from. And when they're not there. Trying mm. to do it from scratch from day one is just almost impossible. I feel I feel really sorry for them. I see, I see how hard they're working now and what they're trying to do, and it's just yeah. yeah. I mean, I love my career and I love my job, and yeah, yeah. Well, it's I, great I that you're. Uh, it, yeah. It's really great that you're still there. Um, you know, you've still got the passion and enthusiasm uh, uh, to, to be able to pass on the benefits of your experience. And thank God, thank God, you do. But. Um, Listen, Paul, conscious of the time, um, we've been talking for the best part of two hours. Um, can I just congratulate, yeah. congratulate you on having having been te- technically the most challenging person I've had on uh, <laughs> with, the, with the technology? Actually, to be fair, it's absolutely nothing to do with you. It's all my stuff. So I'm going to have a I'm going to have a right old um, time of it trying to <laughs> stitch together. Um, yeah, yeah. The times when the Wi-Fi dropped out, the electricity went off. Um, <laughs> Oh my God! I was running around like a like a headless chicken there for a, a couple of times. But um, this, my friend, um, I really, really enjoyed chatting to you. It was really fascinating. Oh, likewise. And um, I'll uh, I'll put this out probably probably later on today if I get if I can. I've got a few chores from Mrs. D. Mrs. D is going to and give me a good battering if I don't do my chores. So <laughs> yeah, get your priorities to it. That's for sure. Definitely. <laughs> All right, my friend. Listen, thanks a million for coming on and chatting to me. And uh, I wish you well. No, no and, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. No worries. Thanks so much, Ian. Really enjoyed Cheers, it. And, uh, great podcast, mate. Keep it going. Thanks, mate. You take care. Thank you. Cheers, and bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>